Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE, and uh, welcome to this um, third in a series of three lectures on art and the limits of the political. Um, I'll tell you very briefly, by way of introduction, how this series came about. Because first of all, officially, this is the Jean Monnet lectures on uh, art and the limits of the political, because for reasons I'll explain, we were awarded some funding from the European Commission for <coughs> a series of events through the Forum for European Philosophy. Last year, the day before the European elections, Jonathan Dronsfield, Robert Eaglestone, and myself, I'm Simon Glendinning, I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy, we put together an event called The Idea of Europe, Philosophy, Art, Literature. And what we wanted to do on the eve of the European political elections was to begin some reflections about the meaning of Europe in a certain way in abstraction from the European Union, trying to come to terms with what Europe is as a, as a space, a political space, but certainly not exclusively a political space, by reflecting on the way the idea of Europe is understood and inflected in philosophy, art and literature. And this got us, that's Jonathan, myself and Robert Eaglestone thinking that there was actually quite a lot of mileage in this investigation of Europe and European, the European world or life world uh, of the sort that we had undertaken then. And we proposed that there would be a series of events under the very, very general title of Europe Beyond Governance, Philosophy, Art and Literature, in which we'd be investigating this idea of a, a heritage, which is distinctively, perhaps absolutely not exclusively, <coughs> but certainly distinctively European, uh, and which might be unearthed in some ways by looking through the lenses of philosophy, art and literature. And the project that which was accepted was that we would uh, amongst other things actually, but at least, that we would run a series of lectures each year for the next three years around this question of Europe beyond government. And the title that we came to agree on for each of the series of lectures in each of the three years was the limits of the political. So there's an idea of uh, exploring the space we inhabit, which is a political space, but not exclusively a political space, and that maybe a certain light could be shed on it uh, by looking at these other regions, art, philosophy, and literature. But also in the hope to think that we shouldn't think of this space as exclusively political, and that the idea of the limitless extension of the political would be a kind of failure of Europe whether of the European Union or of, of European self-understanding. So the idea of the limit of the political being in a certain way a positive thing and that there be uh, something which limits <coughs> which itself might not be exclusively non-political but it would be in some way beyond the political and certainly beyond the institutional political of the European Union. So this year we get art and the limits of the political. Next year it will be literature and the limits of the political, and the following year, the third year, philosophy 
and the limits of the political. And as I say, none of these are about sort of uh, excluding the political, but it, but a certain idea of thinking its limit. Now, I, I haven't been able to attend the first two lectures in this series, so I don't know how closely to their brief the speakers kept. Uh, probably not very close, because when you invite people to speak on something, they rarely, if ever, manage to do that. That's the nature of the beast. But uh, I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan Johnsfield tonight to give the third in this series of three, because of course it was in part Jonathan's idea that we embark on this strange uh, journey in the first place. Um, Jonathan is reader in theory and philosophy of art at the University of Reading and um, is becoming one of the foremost scholars on the relationship between deconstruction, as it was understood by Jacques Derrida, and uh, art practice as it's explored. Within, it, within academia particularly. Um, tonight, in his discussion of art and the limits of the political, his topic, his title is Art and Democracy. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Uh, just a little preamble to the paper, uh, an indication of why I'm raising the sorts of questions I raise I'm interested in the order of dependency between art practice and philosophy, uh, and the, author the authority that one might wish to pull over the other, and how art and philosophy in their own way reveal something about the other that the other can't see by itself. So the way in which art, might, art practice might reveal something about philosophy that philosophy by itself can't see. Um, the paper will discuss two philosophers, Derrida and Rancière. And I'm troubled by both of them because of what might be a privilege accorded to literature and the Literary Speech Act over and against uh, art and the visual. And also, I'm motivated by something that came up in a discussion between Rancière and I, you can read on, on, on the internet, in fact, in the journal Art and Research, after we'd both given a paper and we uh, had an, an impromptu but public discussion. And I was troubled by Rancière saying that he felt that for a work to be political, for a work of art to be political, it has to bear some readable political signification. So that would rule out a large part of contemporary art practice as being political. Contemporary art practice which is on the side of abstraction, let's say. And what troubled me about that was not just that he might want to, or that a philosopher might want to say something like that, but it worried me in terms of Rancière's own philosophy. Because Rancière, in my view, shows us that there is no determinate causal link between any political content or work 
and any political effectivity. And if that is the case, then why is there a need at all for a work to bear any kind of readable political signification in order that it be political? I'm interested in these two philosophers, not least because they philosophize along with art practice, which is contemporaneous with their own practice as philosophers. And not many philosophers do that. But that they might do that doesn't mean that the contemporary reduces to the present moment. So it's, one might want to hold more analytical, analytically minded philosophers to account for why they don't address contemporary art. There are very few analytical philosophers that, that look at contemporary art and that philosophize along with contemporary art. An exception might be Arthur Danto or philosophers such as Stanley Cavell and Joseph Margolis who try and cross the line between analytic and continental. But for the most part, analytical philosophy doesn't philosophize along with contemporary art. Whereas the more continental philosophers do, Derrida and Rancière foremost among them, along with the likes of Deleuze and Badiou. But one wouldn't want to hold the analytical philosophers to account for not doing that if that should reduce the contemporary to the present moment. So one wants to hold out the possibility that you can philosophize about art in the sense that that art becomes contemporary through its being philosophized about, regardless of whether that's contemporary art or not. Now, whilst uh, Simon has said that the three years are divided, art, literature, philosophy, my paper is in fact going to be much more on literature and fiction than it is on art. But I take a certain liberty with these terms. And that's because, although I'm not going to argue this today, that's because in my view, contemporary visual art practice has taken over a critical function from literature. And one of the ways in which it has done that is that it sees literature as material for its practice. So you have now the setting up of departments of art writing, for instance. There's an MA in art writing at Goldsmiths. There's going to be one at the Royal College of Art. So contemporary art practice doesn't really recognize the distinction between visual art and literature or writing. One could argue that this has been the case since conceptual art in the 60s. It's certainly, in my view, it's certainly the case that uh, the visual now incorporates writing, fiction. So when I talk about how Derrida addresses literature and Rancière addresses fiction, 
I have in my mind something other than just literature and fiction. I know that's a little bit more difficult for you to make that leap. Uh, and we can talk about that in, in, a, in the questions afterwards, if you wish. And one final thing, I don't discuss, unusually for me in fact, I don't discuss examples of contemporary art in this paper, but I'm happy to, uh, after the, the formal end to it, as it were. And just as, just as well to say that this paper, Art and Democracy, it's about where philosophy might see the distinction between democracy and the other of democracy fall, and how literature and fiction helps philosophy to see where that distinction might fall. <coughs> So, to put it in a nutshell, Rancière thinks that the other of democracy, its other, is on the inside of democracy. And Derrida thinks that the other of democracy is on both the inside and the outside of democracy. Rancière thinks that Derrida is mistaken to construe the relationship between democracy and its other in this way. But he doesn't really write about Derrida. And nor have I found anything on Derrida and Rancière. So this paper constitutes something of a, of a leap. And we'll see where we land. So first I'm going to say something about Derrida, I'm going to say something about Rancière, and Rancière's Derrida, and then something about practice. In one of his late texts, published in English as Rogues, Two Essays on Reason, Derrida says the following, and I quote, democracy is the only system, the only constitutional paradigm in which, in principle, one has or assumes the right to criticize everything publicly, including the idea of democracy, its concept, its history, and its name, including the idea of the constitutional paradigm and the absolute authority of the law. It is thus the only paradigm that is universalizable, whence its chance and its fragility. Close quotes. Chance and fragility. What he refers to elsewhere in Rogues as the double bind of threat and chance. Because intrinsic to the idea of democracy, and really he's talking about a democracy to come, is that it must bring with it not just the chance of a transformation for the better, but the fragility of a threat of the very worst. Further, in a slightly earlier text, democracy is an historical concept in the sense that, and I quote, it is the only concept of a regime or a political organization in which history, that is the endless process of improvement and perfectibility, is inscribed in the concept, close quotes. Now, in an earlier text, an interview, 
dating from 1989, published us this strange institu institution called literature. Derrida describes literature as a space in which, and I quote, everything can be said to the extent that literature can defy the law. In this respect, it is, he says, inseparable from what calls forth a democracy in the most open and doubtless itself to come sense of democracy. And further, what defines literature, he says, is, and I quote, the principled authorization that anything can be said publicly. Close quotes. This is what makes it impossible for Derrida to separate the invention of literature from the history of democracy. So we have democracy as the space in which everything can be criticized, including the law, including democracy, and literature as the space in which everything can be said to the extent that it can defy the law. In fact, the can here is not simply an option. Democracy is democratic to the extent that it criticizes itself. Literature is literature to the extent that it says everything, in the sense that it asks what is literature. And it would appear that the two, democracy, or at least a certain democracy to come, and literature are co-original with each other in this respect. But by the time of the later text on democracy to come, rogues, that, with which I began this presentation, literature is mentioned just once. So in this text on democracy to come, literature is mentioned just once. And rather than appearing to be coextensive with the emergence of democracy, it is granted a certain right to appear by democracy, as something like a modulation of democracy. I quote, democracy opens public space, the publicity of public space, by granting the right to a change of tone, to irony, as well as to fiction, the simulacrum, the secret, literature, and so on. Close quotes. So the two are no longer coextensive now. It seems as if democracy opens up the space for literature. In which case, if the democracy to which literature is so inextricably linked is to come, then the right to say anything granted by democracy, granted to literature by democracy, can never be concretely realized or actualized. And to that extent, the institution of literature is itself a fictive institution. On the other hand, if literature does say everything, it does so only on the condition that it keeps from the public, and thus from politics, something that is heterogeneous to it, something that Derrida calls a secret, by which he does not mean something private, but that which is singular, to which the public realm has no right and no power. This secret is that on the basis of which the public realm and the political realm can and must remain open, for it is precisely where the question posed to democracy as to what it is would arise. So 
So democracy is not simply open or defined by an openness reducible to the present. Democracy is not a purely open realm in which all are equal. If it is open, it is infinitely open to what is not present, namely otherness, an otherness which is heterogeneous to the present moment of democracy. What Derrida is after is a conception of democracy which does not make of equality something homogeneous. He appears to be troubled by something about democracy as we currently conceive it, which Heidegger, too, was sceptical towards. Heidegger thought democracy an insufficient means with which to deal with technology. Man cannot master technology, but with democracy he presupposes that he can, and in the process loses or sacrifices his force. What worries Heidegger, who in turn follows Nietzsche on this, is that democracy reduces difference to the same, insofar as it devalues the highest values such that they become only values and no longer, as he puts it, form-giving forces. Derrida, too, sees democracy as a question of force. It is, he says, the place of a negotiation or a compromise between the field of forces as it exists or presents itself currently, insufficient democracy, European democracy, democracy American style or French style, for example, and democracy to come. But the negotiation that Derrida calls for is not reducible to the empirical or to the present moment, even if the empirical and the present moment are where the call for democracy emanates from. Rather, the task of thinking democracy is what he calls a futural one, not in the sense that it takes place in the future, but in that it is orientated towards a to come which is radically open to the future. The essential openness of democracy for Derrida is not in its presence, but its absence, not in any particular political configuration, but in what it promises. There would not be democracy were any particular configuration to be adequate to the concept of it. This constitutive inadequation is the very originality of democracy. And if democracy is to be questioned and critiqued, then such will only take place in a space within democracy which is not covered over or enclosed by it. In order to question democracy, it is necessary to withdraw something from it and to think that which is hidden from it. The secret it keeps from itself. It's to come. And this is what Derrida calls otherness or alterity. As he puts it, the coming of the other as other, as the unexpected of the future. He says this is what makes democracy a very paradoxical concept. Now, Roncia. Another way of thinking the paradox of democracy is given by Jacques Roncia. And it is one which is both consonant and dissonant with Derrida's. <coughs> For Rancière, in the chapter, Does Democracy Mean Something?, from his recent book on Dissensus, it's published this year in English, the institution of democracy appears to answer the question of what it is that grounds the power of rule. But the 
But the answer it provides is that there is no ground at all. Democracy is not a form of government. It is a political supplement. It is the political which is supplementary to any particular form that a group of people qualified to govern might take. For instance, government by experience, a gerontocracy, or a government by expertise, which would be a technocracy, and so on. It is that which is superadded to whatever would qualify any one group of persons to govern. But in being so added, it at once both legitimizes and delegitimizes that set. For what is added is the will of the people. And government by the people, for the people, will lead to the disruption of the principles and procedures of whatever qualifies one to govern be it experience, or expertise, or any one of the other qualifications listed by Plato in his Republic. The will of the people will always be in excess of any political activity, in one of two ways. Self-governance is utopian, and individual desire is anarchic. Good government, good governance will always require the reduction of this double excess of the will. Ranciere summarizes this double bind of the democratic paradox. He too calls it the democratic paradox. They use the same term. Thus, I quote, democracy as a form of government is threatened by democracy as a form of social and political life, and so the former must repress the latter. Close quotes. But democracy is, in fact, neither of these for Roncia. So it's neither a form of government nor a form of social and political life. Rather, democracy is, and I quote, the institution of politics as such, close quote. It is the supplement which makes power political. But as such, it is the supplement which both grounds the rule of law and lays the ground for the undermining of that rule. The power of the people founds any rule and at the same time withdraws its foundations. Democracy then is always vanishing and forever in need of being retrieved. We can see that both Derrida's and Ranciere's accounts of democracy construe democracy as a paradox where democracy is something like both the condition of possibility and impossibility of politics where democracy both calls for and defers the rule of law. However, Ranciere explicitly contrasts his conception of democracy to Derrida's. And he does so because he believes that something is lost in Derrida's account, namely, democracy as a practice. He criticizes Derrida's account of democracy for how it figures otherness, for how, at one and the same time, Democracy both lacks otherness and reifies otherness. Indeed, for how otherness must be reified if it can only come from without. Ranciere's Derrida has democracy holding fast to the unexamined power of the autos, or self. In a word, says democracy, so, sorry, says Ranciere, democracy lacks its other which can only come to it from the outside. 
against which Ronsinger <coughs> objects that otherness does not come to politics from the outside. On the contrary, democracy is the principle of otherness. It is that which both joins and disjoins politics from its ground. It is that which allows rule to those who have no qualification to rule. It is the inner difference that both legitimizes and delegitimizes state institutions and practices of ruling. And this disjunction is not apparetic, as Derrida would conceive democracy. It is dissensual. It is a matter of dissensus. Where Rancière does agree with Derrida is that democracy is split by a temporal and a spatial disjunction. A democracy to come is not the same time, the same temporality, as the time of liberal, liberal democracy the West has achieved. The promise of democracy is one that can never be fulfilled precisely because of its openness to otherness. Thus, democracy to come is not the same space as that occupied by liberal democracy. In agreeing with the Derridian principle which keeps democracy from being fulfilled, Rancière means to say that it is its otherness which serves to defer it, an otherness internal to democracy for Rancière and external according to his Derrida. But it is how Derrida opposes these two temporalities and these two spatialities with which Rancière disagrees, which would construe liberal democracy as a form of government and democracy to come as an infinite openness towards the other. In other words, what's wrong with Derrida's account is that it opposes the institution of democracy to a transcendental horizon. Yet Rancière does say that Derrida places these two differing temporalities in the same time, and these two different spatialities in the same space. Presumably then, if this is not to be an equivocation on Rancière's part, this space is the space not of democracy, but that of philosophy, or a merely theoretically determined democratic space lacking the return of the practice of politics. For what is lost in Derrida's opposition, according to Rancière, is the practice of politics. The other never comes for Derrida, whilst for Rancière it is always already there, and the trick is to give it a voice or to make it visible. This political process of subjectification would consist in inventing the other, in continually creating newcomers, new political subjects, able to, and I quote, enact the equal power of anyone and everyone and construct new words about community in the given common world, close quotes. And to do so by creating sensible ways of seeing and hearing these. This is why there is no one way of bringing about community, not if it is primarily a matter of, as Rancière puts it, redistributing the sensible. Derrida may well, be, may well acknowledge the need to invent otherness, but he gives us no means to do so. For Rancière, 
Derrida's account of democracy amounts to the dismissal of politics because its otherness is seen not as part of the very sensible of political life and its disjunction and conjunction with the social, but as outside of the political. Derrida ends up doing what political modernists do. He substantializes otherness. He reifies it and is, and is thus no less part of the contemporary ethical trend that is our inheritance from Levinas than our Adorno and Lietal, for example. By ethically overstating otherness, we wait for it infinitely, giving the other too much presence, too much flesh, facing us with the Levinasian form of an ethical injunction reinstates transcendence. Whereas conceiving of otherness politically, we are required to invent multiple forms of its inscription. But surely the other must be given flesh if it is to puncture what Ranciere is calling this transcendental horizon. If the horizon is shown to be a fiction. Ranciere takes his conception of democracy to differ from Derrida's in that the future comes as a consequence of political invention and is not posited as a condition of possibility of politics. Derrida would disagree, of course, that to come of democracy does not mean delaying indefinitely the task of addressing the political here and now. On the contrary, it is precisely because there is no possibility of democracy arriving in any form adequate to what it promises that we are faced with the necessity of negotiation, compromise, and decision here and now. That such means can only prove unsatisfactory when measured against the need for them does not authorize indefinitely waiting. To be democratic means, and I quote from Derrida, to act in the recognition that we never live in a sufficiently democratic society. Close quotes. Ranciere's worry is that this translates into an ethical task rather than a political one. But my question would be, what is it that leads Ranciere to classify this as ethical or political? Or in other words, why retain the name politics for the invention that he acknowledges democracy calls for? I raise this question not just because it seems to me that Ranciere's entire project is otherwise devoted to displacing the borders between disciplines, about which I'll say something more in a moment, and therefore to a blurring of the distinction opposing politics to ethics, rather than an insistence on just such an opposition. But because there is one other aspect of thinking politics that both Ranciere and Derrida share, and that is neither of them think in terms of destination. Or at least this is what Ranciere claims for his work. What I, may, what I mean by this is that neither Ranciere nor Derrida think democracy in terms of a desired political outcome. Both are careful not to hold out as an achievement of democracy an image defined in terms of a future goal. <clears throat> to do so would be to think representationally, something which is inimical to the work of both of these thinkers. <clears throat> Politics for both Ranciere and Derrida would consist as much in processes of disidentification 
as it would in the need for producing new identifications, interrupting processes of identification as much as rectifying denials of them. And this would involve creating dissensus rather than consensus in Ronciere's terms, or multiplying the differences in Derrida's terms. In both cases, the dissensual and the multiple would be sensible, sensible gaps or differences. As Ronciere puts it, and I quote, it is impossible to think of the future community as a projection of those kinds of communities that are involved in political conflict. Close quotes. It is meaningless to think such future communities. To think a future democratic community would be to conceive a community metaphysically, as one in which everyone would have the same meaning. Emancipation is not a goal, as he puts it, it is a process, a break in the present, rather than an ideal put in the future. One which involves reframing the ways in which the sensuous world is distributed and partitioned. Ways which are thus aesthetic for being concerned first and foremost with the sensible and with the appearance of the sensible, with new forms of space and time as they are given to be seen. But inventing newness in the present would consist in disidentifying such forms with the present moment, in that it would be to reframe the ways in which the sensible appears contrary to how it appears now. It is this reduction to visibility and appearance in which perhaps Ronciere's difference to Derrida consists. Ronciere gives the example of a strike in the 1830s where workers demand for, re for relations of equality with their bosses took the form of insisting that the bosses take off their hats when entering the workshop. Whilst acknowledging that this can be interpreted as an ethical claim for recognition, Ronciere would rather suggest that more importantly, it is about the visibility of equality, underscoring a specific connection between politeness and politicity. If politics is first of all a sphere of appearance for Ranciere, it is because appearance is the realm which is common to all. But for Derrida, this construal of appearance as a realm in which visibility is common, or we might say public, to all who share it, reinforces the public-private <coughs> distinction rather than brings it into question. And rather than displacing the distinction, shifts its dimensions and thus stands as an obstruction to the process of democracy. Fictionalizing a space <coughs> in which equality is seen to be shared across hierarchies does not mean that all becomes visible. Rather, for Derrida, something has to be invisibilized and withdrawn from democracy in order for that democracy to be brought into question at all. We might put this slightly differently. The fiction must occupy something in the visible that is kept from the public space that democracy is 
in order to bring democracy into question. On the other hand, that it be for Roncia a question of the visible is the basis on which he accords contemporary visual art a primary importance today in inventing subjectivities of otherness, and where we might locate in Derrida a certain reticence, or indeed difficulty, in giving art its due in bringing democracy into question. Rather than substantialize the other, or the inexistent, as he sometimes puts it, Ronciere argues that we must fictionalize it. I quote, the inexistent, which is his word for the other, is first of all words, texts, fictions, narratives, characters, a paper life instead of the life of ghosts or geist. Now art is political in that it brings into appearance otherwise unseen subject positions and the connections between them, and in that it enacts the equality of these in the midst of what I earlier called the constantly receding condition of the political, namely democracy. But it seems to me that this is precisely what a ghost is in the history of literature, a fiction of the inexistent. So Ronciere is contrasting the so-called paper life with ghosts and geists, and here he's referring to Derrida's insistence that the other is a kind of ghost or a secret. Moreover, does, this not, does not this appeal to paper life itself harbour a prejudice, namely for the linguistic and the verbal over against the imagistic and the visual? For Ronciere, democracy, before anything else, involves bringing into question the limits of the political. I quote, democratic logic, he says, consists in blurring and displacing the borders of the political. This is what politics means, displaying the limits of the political, sorry, displacing the limits of the political by reenacting the equality of each and all qua vanishing condition of the political. Close quotes. And what displacing the limits of the political means here is contesting its differentiation from the social, where the political would be those who think and take care of a future over against those who are incapable of doing so because they are not able to think beyond their private and immediate desires. And he argues this is precisely what fiction and contemporary visual art can do. To repeat, it is a displacement which consists primarily in inventing and fictionalizing subject positions which would contest conventional placings of that boundary. It is an intelligence that art and fiction share with philosophy. Here Ronciere sees his own practice as a philosopher to consist in returning the specificity of disciplines, competences, expertises and authorities back to an egalitarian le level of shared poetic invention. And if there is a privilege of philosophy, it lies in the frankness with which it tells us that the truth about truth is a fiction and undoes the hierarchy just as it builds it. So philosophy is no less a fictional invention than literature in two senses. 
It is itself the invention of subject positions for the other. And second, its truth claims can themselves be traced back to fiction. We would surely be entitled then to expect this construal of philosophy to mean that it puts its own limits into question, insofar as those own limits might seek to demarcate or aggregate for philosophy an authority or privilege over other modes of linguistic innovation not its to claim, and that it would do so on the level of practice. However, it is not clear to me that this is what Ronciere does, whereas it seems to me that this is precisely what Derrida does do. Ronciere calls for the fictioning of subject positions for, for, for politics. But for Derrida, there would not be politics were it not for fiction. What Ronciere calls philosophy's undoing of the hierarchies, which might otherwise place philosophy in a position of authority over literature, is itself a literary fiction. The question is one of the order of dependency between disciplines, assumed by any one discipline, as much as it is a question of blurring the distinction between them. For the problem is simply repeated if the blurring is done first, or authoritatively, by philosophy over against literature, for instance, or vice versa. It is interesting to see how Ronciere characterizes a discipline. It is, he says, and I quote, always the anticipated implementation of a decision about the relation of thought and life, about the way thought is shared. Close quotes. In which case, the task for philosophy would be to think outside the horizon of this anticipation. My first concern from the beginning, he says elsewhere, has been to set aside all analysis of political matters in terms of destination. For this, I think it is necessary to dismiss any temporal teleology. Close quotes. <coughs> this is what leads Ronciere to say that there is no causal or determinate link between why understanding the state of the world should lead to a decision to change it. This is what invites him to ward us off from believing that there is a determinate causal link between this or that specific political content and a political decision. This is what allows him to contend that to construe art as political in terms of a specific political content is to miss what is political about art, namely that it is about sensible distribution as such. To think without anticipation of an outcome, to think without destination, is to think without origin. It is to think outside an authority granted by a prior entitlement. It is to think without the direction of one's thought being determined from the outset. It would be to think along with the emergence of direction. It would be to think destination without condition. And it, would and it would entail relinquishing any determinate content whatsoever to the open, whether that openness be inside or outside, towards which one's thought is risked. It would be to allow philosophy to wander across the border. And it would be to place philosophy's openness into the open as a condition of the encounter 
with that which it might seek to bring into question. I, I actually, I've got two footnotes to those last two remarks because I've just done a seminar on walking as a philosophic and aesthetic practice. And, um, and I came across this remark by Derrida where he talks about what an aporia is. He says, the aporia is not simply paralysis, but the aporia, or the non-way, as he puts it, is the condition of walking. If there was no aporia, we wouldn't walk. We wouldn't find our way. Path-breaking implies aporia. This impossibility to find one's way is the condition of ethics. So he's saying, without that condition, we wouldn't even walk. There would not be this question of putting one foot in front of the other. And then the other footnote I have to this is, is uh, a remark I came across in Deleuze, where he talks about the democratic contribution of American literature. And he draws this from D.H. Lawrence. He says, and I quote, a morality of life in which the soul is fulfilled only by taking to the road with no other aim, open to all contacts, never trying to save other souls, which is his characterization of European democracy. Freedom as its sole accomplishment, always ready to free itself so as to complete itself. So again, it's this idea of wandering, taking to the road. So those footnotes, footnote the following, which I will repeat. It would be to allow, to, so to think without destination in the sense that Ronsier claims his philosophy is doing. It would be to allow philosophy to wander across the border. It would be to place philosophy's openness into the open as a condition of the encounter with that which it might seek to bring into question. I never asked myself what kind of philosophy I was doing, or whether I was doing philosophy or something else, Ronciere says. But if, if this is what he is doing, then his philosophy would look very different. It would look something like Derrida's. I don't cross borders because I want to destabilize things, he goes on to say. I'm really a very quiet person. What interests me is trying to find the point of intelligibility. Close quotes. My worry with this is on the level of its conception of the difference between philosophy and art and literature, or the intelligibility shared between them. To reshape the territory of these so-called disciplines, is it not necessary to presuppose a border between them, the point of intelligibility between them, their shared intelligibility? Would that not be an agreement as to where the border between them lies. If, on the other hand, the shared intelligibility is such that fiction is there at the heart of democracy, in the sense that any authoritative claim to rule will be based not on that authority, but on the will of the people embodied by chance or by choice by that person or persons, then any invention of subject positions will be a reinvention for Ronciere, democracy is other to itself internally. For Ronciere's Derrida, democracy is other to itself externally. For Derrida, what Ronciere calls 
Derrida's transcendental horizon of democracy is punctured by the figure of the other. And that other is kept other by its withdrawal from the openness, the publicness of democracy. That the horizon be broken by the figure of the, of the other does not mean that there is no horizon at all. It means that the horizon is the experience of the absence of horizon. And I would argue that someone like Beckett, Samuel Beckett's work, would be a, a great exemplification of that thought. For Derrida, as we have seen, literature is intrinsic to democracy as the modality and, and perhaps even the voice of the anything that can be said about democracy. Whilst at the same time, that democracy be to come means that this anything cannot be actualized as an everything. Philosophy for Derrida performs the problem of which it speaks. The invention of otherness that Ronciere calls for as a task of politics is for him best performed by literature and by art. The invention of otherness called for by Derrida is performed by philosophy as literature in the sense that philosophy does not presuppose in advance where the border falls between philosophy and literature. Rather, the otherness of philosophy, of politics, of democracy, the outside of all of these, is to be found on the inside of them. There is no difference between Derrida and Rancière in this respect. The outside is inside for both of them. There is a non-public within the public. But for Rancière, this non-public can and must be made public. It can and must be visibilized and made common to all in order that the other arrives. This is what art does. For Derrida, the difference between the public and the non-public has to remain hidden, or in other words, undecidable. It is only by undergoing such a limit that we can performatively allow the other who happens by or the other who arrives. Ronciere thinks that we can cross the limit and displace it. Derrida thinks we must leave it undecidable. Thus, if there is a difference, it is in their conception of the demos or the aesthetic as autonomous realms. For neither of them does autonomy stand opposed to heteronomy. If the demos or the aesthetic is autonomous, it can only be an autonomy heteronomously constituted. The difference is, um, is in how the heteron is seen or not seen. For Rancière, it can be made visible by art. And until then, the heteron cannot see. For Derrida, the heteron is always invisible to philosophy, but it can see. And it is only when philosophy can see this, that it sees itself, but it's only art or fiction, literature, that can allow philosophy to see the heteron. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I've got a bit of time. So I've got to ask a sort of clarifying question for myself, because mm -hmm. I'm 
all sort of taking notes for the future as well. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about Rancière urging something like a displacing the limits of the political at one point. Obviously, the limits of the political was one of the sort of central concepts for our overarching series. It's actually called Art and the Limits of the Political. So it is. So displacing the limits of the political. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you wanted to say that for Rancière, this required not displacing them, meant extending pushing them out to take in what they weren't presumably currently taking in. Because you said there was a contrast to uh, social, social, social life, was it? Mm -hmm. So there might be a part of our life which wasn't currently being embraced by that, which was, and I think the suggestion was it was taken up by private desires or personal activities rather than public ones, mm -hmm. for example. Could you, if you can, say something about um, how Rancière is here seeing the current setup, as it were, and what he would rather like to see to, in its place? Mm -hmm. And then my question would be, would, would this be just another kind of these standard gestures that Derrida might be criticizing as making democracy arrive, as it were, it would be another of these production of the adequate. Mm -hmm. is, is that, so okay. it's a lot of that. Well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, you start. This question about what would he rather see in its place, neither he nor Derrida is going to answer that question. Neither he nor Derrida will say that we can put in front of us a picture or an image of political state of affairs that we might desire. It makes no sense to say that because what that is will be a negotiation of the present moment, the here and now. And if you if you really want to, to talk about something which we don't have then the only way you can do it is to fictionalize, is to invent something. But then you won't really be addressing the, the here and that. So neither of them will hold in front of us this desired political outcome. That's to think representation. That's to, to think that you can frame the world and attain the world in the form of a picture or a representation of it. So neither of them are going to do that. The difference is that Rancière thinks that, and you're right in your characterization of the current state of affairs, but that current state of affairs will always be the current state of affairs. Namely, that there are amongst us people whose voices are not being heard. People who are not given the place with which to speak, or from which to speak. There are amongst us people and groups for whom this is the case. And politics is about giving them that voice, allowing them to be heard, giving them a place from which they can speak. So democracy is always about that displacement of those who can from those who cannot, 
those who do from those who do not, those who are audible from those who are inaudible, those who, are, who can be seen from those who cannot be seen. It's always about shifting that distinction. But my invention of Derrida's response to Rancière's criticism of him says that that displacement will always be just a shift in the dimensions of this realm of those who do and who can from the realm of those who do not and cannot. It will always just be a kind of shift, a moving around of the distinction. It won't be to bring the distinction into question. It won't be to radically dissolve a distinction. So the only way in which you can think that kind of distinction, the distinction between those who have and those who have not, those who are audible from those who are inaudible, those who can be seen from those who cannot be seen, is to think democracy in terms of a radical openness where we don't know where this distinction between public and private falls. Where you've got to free up that, that, that thinking and the only way in which you can do that is to think democracy as always having something about it which is kind of hidden or kept to itself. Rancière's criticism of that is that transcendentalizes the other as a transcendental horizon. Derrida's response would be, because they never had a conversation, or at least a public one, or one that was printed. Derrida's response would be to say that that horizon, if there is such an other to the other of the democracy we have now, if there is another kind of democracy, if there's a democracy to come, that otherness will break through that horizon. Rancière then would say, well, that gives too much flesh to the other, that kind of personalizes the other, anthropomorphizes the other, and it turns politics into ethics, because that other then comes to us with an ethical injunction, hear me, see me. But Rancière doesn't want that kind of substantialization or that ontologization of the other, because then you lose the day-to-day -day necessary practice of doing philosophy. Derrida will say there would be no motivational propulsion for us to do that day-to-day -day practice of democracy were it not for the fact that philosophy will never arrive, it will never come. So that's what obliges us to make a decision or to act instead of thinking that we have democracy and reassuring ourselves with yeah. what he calls the good conscience of its arrival. Yeah, sure. I can understand that the, both of them would want to prevent you from having the good conscience of its arrival. But I can't see why a certain becoming concrete of this might not be available, certainly to Rolfier as you presented him. So, for example... Uh, I'm not going to go back to the one I just gave, but here's another one. Which one might put in the same place? Uh, the extension of the right to vote. Mm -hmm. um, 
when it was when when there was first a democracy, the 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 group of people eligible to vote was very very narrow, very small, and, mm -hmm. and over a period of time, you could think of histories of the democratization of democracy, which you might want to say is inexhaustible and belongs inside it to some kind of inexhaustibility. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you this shifting those who can, those who can't, does shift and shifts in a direction of the better or the worse and so on. And uh, what I was trying to see in Roncier was what kind of shift he was particularly looking at which would be of that order of for the better. And it seemed to be one in which there was some displacing of the limits of the political itself that he wanted. So yeah, that is democracy. That is what just what democracy is. There's nothing outside of democracy. That is for Rancia. That is exactly what it is: the displacement of the limits of the political itself. Sorry. Right. So now, what, what's when you give the vote to more people? Mm -hmm. Does that displace the limits of democracy? Exactly. It does. Yeah. That is the displacement of the limits of democracy. That's an example of it. Yeah. Right. Um, what else would be an example? Of it? Well, any number of those sorts of. But, right. Reforms and reforms brought about by articulate minorities, and yeah. Yeah, who have then given a voice and a visibility that hitherto they did not. And that giving a voice and a visibility to is always a matter of redistributing the sensible world, as he puts right. it. Now, it's all does about he visibility. Think, does he think that there is a kind of notional endpoint here, which would be the limitless extension, right? And that Derrida, on the other hand, would say, now that idea of the limitless extension of the political is an a road to disaster. Okay. I would say that there is no limit to the limit of the political in the sense that there'll never come a time when these displacements of that boundary the audible, the inaudible, visible, invisible, have and have not, needs to be displaced. There will never be an end to the need to displace that. So right. in that sense, the limits of the political are unlimited, but always in each case limited. Okay? Because you don't hold out any kind of <coughs> transcendental... That's brought here. Yeah. For Derrida, the limits of the political will, well, it's limitless in the sense that democracy will never come in any form which is adequate to the concept we have of it. Yeah. So that's its limitlessness, is that it will never arrive. But it's that non-arrival, it's forever to come, that is the very kind of propulsion for us acting at all. But then Roncia sees that the other way round. Roncia sees that as a kind of ethical injunction and the dismissal of politics. Okay, we're going, we're going round and round. Mm -hmm. back. Before asking a question about what I think is your punchline as to the role of uh, the aesthetic and art yeah. signifying or flushing out the yeah. otherness or the alien point yeah, yeah, Roncia yeah. and Derrida. First, let me paraphrase. Model of the beautiful, um, the sublime, the judgment of the beautiful and the sublime. 
to uh, obviously follow an indeterminate rule, as in Kantian discourse, and yet taking on this uh, enlarged mentality other on board all the time. Whereas in uh, what you get in... What uh, did you just say? The enlarged mentality other? That's, that's the mental operation you have to perform. That's what seemed to me was an issue when you said that uh, you have to try to imagine Invent. the fictional other. Invent, yeah. Fictionalise it, yeah. Uh, whereas what you get in uh, Derrida is something quite different. It's the model of the judgment sublime where you cannot ever father the otherness, uh, otherness and yet you postulate this normative idea that you ought to try no matter what. And yet the comprehension of it uh, remains beyond your grasp. No, no, Derrida does not commit himself to the, uh, to the sublime. They both are very critical of the role of the sublime. They both would disagree with the likes of Adorno and Lyotard and Deleuze for their being beholden to the notion of the sublime. That's not, that's not where, where the, 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 the solution or the I mean, problem the is. From your point of view, would the procedure in any way exemplify what's at issue? Mm -hmm. Which <coughs> procedure? The procedure was at issue in uh, the judgment of the sublime. No, it wouldn't. No, you asked me. You asked me for a punchline, okay? Well, well, I would say, okay, I would say that the punchline is that for art, both of these um, conceptions of democracy and its relation to its other are shown by art. Yeah. Both are, and this is how it can show something about philosophy that philosophy cannot see in its internal dissensus. So you have this in, uh, disagreement between Rancière and Derrida which is internal for, philo for philosophy, internal to philosophy. And if you look at it in terms of a kind of two types of movement, so what would, what kind of movement would democracy be for Rancière? it would be an endless oscillation on the inside of democracy. The endless call for the institution to limit the excess of the personal, so the public to limit the excess of the personal. And then the institution to intervene in that to limit the excess of the institution and allow for greater personal liberty and freedom. So it's this kind of endless oscillation between the two. That's what democracy is. That's where the border is endlessly being displaced. So there is this endless oscillation. But it happens imminently. Well, it, you, I don't know that you, would, you can call it imminent if there is no outside in the sense that there's no transcendence. Okay, so that it, it's not opposed to transcendence because there is no transcendence for 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 um, Roncia. If you if you look at the, the kind of movement that Derrida's conception of philosophy is, and I try drawing a diagram, this diagram is going to become more and more important for philosophy. Um, the, the 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 movement for Derrida is is the 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 other of democracy, it's kind of outside, is 
both on the inside and the outside of democracy. So you have two movements. You have this internal movement, this kind of shaking, trembling within democracy, and, this, and it's kind of being crossed by a movement from the inside to the outside. Now, art can do both of those. Art can show these two kinds of movement. And this is where a philosophical disagreement makes little sense to art as a disagreement. For art, it would be a difference. It would be a difference. So you would have different ways of showing these kinds of inside and outside to the, to the demos. Why I said at the beginning of my paper that I've taken a certain liberty when I talk about fiction and talk about literature, these are Rancières and Derrida's terms, as if it were art, because contemporary visual art has taken the literary and the fictional into itself, as it were. Why I said that is that if the aesthetic realm is autonomous, it's because it sees anything as material for it now. So contemporary art practice, there does not exist any pragmatic or criterial distinction as to what counts as material for contemporary art practice as against what does not or cannot or should not count as material for contemporary art practice. So the aesthetic realm, anything can count as material. Anything whatsoever, including fiction, including literature. Now, if that's the case, its autonomy is heteronomously constituted in the sense that it takes in everything. It takes in that which is uh, hitherto other to the aesthetic realm. That's because of artists' specific practices. An artist just decides to bring this in and do something with it and work with it and shape it in this way. So that kind of uh, move of bringing anything into the aesthetic realm, anything can count as material for contemporary art, for me reveals that any kind of autonomy that might attach to that realm, that autonomy would be then the it can say anything that I began this paper with. So art can say anything. That autonomy to say anything is heteronomously constituted. So, so another question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, limit to shifting the limit, of course that's precisely what there would be for non-democratic countries. That essay, that book that I mentioned, that late book by Derrida, 
called Rogues, Two Essays on Reason, where he talks about democracy to come. He also talks about rogue states. So the rogue, what, 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 what do we do <laughs> about rogue states? And if we do anything, what does that say about the notion of sovereignty and the nation state as a, 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 a counteracting force to the rogueness of those? Unfortunately, he doesn't talk about literature. That would be a very good question to put to him because he only mentions literature once in that text and, and it seems to be that literature is granted a right to say anything at all by democracy whereas it used to look as though the two were coextensive. So that limit as to the shifting of the limit would of course be what limit what what the the would be a limit imposed by the state. But Derrida also says that that's a limit that democracy reserves for itself as well. So that limit to the shifting of the limit will be a right that democracy has to retain in order to protect itself as democracy. That would be what he calls its autoimmunity. Secrecy. Yeah, exactly, that kind of secrecy. So that kind of, it, that usurpation of the power of democracy in order to protect democracy from the forces internal to it that might lead to the dissolution of democracy. So in other words, you get these kind of, uh, you get these arguments that come election time in this country, should we let the BMP speak? Well, Dara said, yes, we should, because democracy will reserve for its right, and reserve as its right, to limit the the so-called free speech, by which it defines itself as a democracy. So, yeah, those li those limits will will shift, but the but the, the the important thing is not to think that democracy is itself immune from making the very same moves that a non or anti-democratic state would want to make. So that limit on the limitlessness will also be something internal to democracy, even though democracy is its opposite. If you see what I mean. And but then you could carry that on with saying why prefer one to the other then? Uh, because the other, namely the non-democratic state, the goal of that non-democratic state is to limit the openness of democracy. So that's why you prefer the other. <laughs> you would prefer the democracy because it, even if it took that step reserve for itself the right to take the anti-democratic step, it would still be taken in the name of democracy. <laughs> Obviously that autoimmunity can lead to a kind of self-destruction then. I mean, you, can, you, you, you take the name in vain at a certain point and you turn yourself into your other. Right. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that would be the fragility of the worst. You know, that the yeah. worst can come is that you, be, you turn yourself into the worst other, yeah. which is no less other than the best other. Right. But Whose conception of democracy do you prefer? <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, I think it's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
it's the evidence. Okay, you have a question. Uh, why? Hang on, no. Uh, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> So do you mean then that uh, in a situation where there is a, a threat, you invoke the threat of fascism, artists are going to be producing work which resists 
resists fascism and it resists it politically or does it have to exceed the political resist it ethically yeah uh, other, unless it's ethical unless it, it goes beyond okay now I will use the, my answer to your question to answer your provocation and that is that the reason I prefer Derrida's democracy over against Roncia's democracy is because Derrida's democracy is closer to what I think of as the kind of criminality of the artist. And the artist is criminal to the extent that if they see something, if they can imagine something, they'll, they'll do it. This is their great strength, as it were. This is their resource. They'll go there. They There's no principled reason why they would not go there. This is the autonomy of the aesthetic realm. It's suspension of conscience, suspension of our ethics, suspension of our politics. That an artist will go there, and they can go there in the name of politics, they can go there in the name of ethics to raise questions that would not otherwise be raised within the political configurations that we have now. So to that extent, they're kind of criminal, because if they see it, they'll do it. They'll go there. They'll, there's nothing that will stop them, because they want to make art. They, they'll do that. Now, if they do it, where I'm in agreement with Rons here, is that if they do it because they want to present a certain kind of political content, and they want, they're driven to do it by some desired political outcome, then they're not, doing, they're not artists. They're politicians acting as artists. If they're doing it well, very, that's, that's the norm. I mean, that's normally why artists make kind of politically contentful art. Because they, they're trying to get you, drag you, pull you, draw you to the acceptance of a desired political outcome. Now, if that is the, the motivation, then for me, I lose, begin to lose interest. It's the same with philosophy. As soon as I begin to sense that a philosopher is philosophizing, giving me the philosophy that he gives me because he has in front of him this desired political outcome, then I begin to distrust the philosopher because it's doing politics by other means. For example, Alain Badiou is, for me, uh, uh, an example of just such a philosopher. So this is why I prefer Derrida's over Roncius because I think that Roncius ultimately does not cater for that criminal aspect of going there because they want to go there. For Rancière, there will always be, whatever the artists do will always be circumscribed by this need to address the current condition, the current political configuration, the displacement of the limits of the political as they stand. Whereas that's not what artists do. Artists go somewhere, they go beyond the limits of the political in that sense. They go beyond the limits of the political, construed as the limits of the political. I followed that. Quite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and so, actually, I think if, if you don't mind, we're hitting time, and we'll stop the questions there. And uh, thank Jonathan for going wherever he went. <laughs>